and, uh, which is what every, every mother um, is. John 13, <clears throat> we, uh, two weeks ago, last week we did a prayer time together, uh, but week before that we started this, this new section in John. Uh, it's called the Upper Room Discourse. It takes place in the Upper Room, Passover meal, uh, the night before Jesus is put to death. And it's his time with his disciples, immediately before he's going to the cross. And we, in these chapters, chapters 13 to 17, we were brought into this room and are permitted to listen in on this intimate conversation he's having with his 12 disciples. He's preparing them for the cross, for all of the events that are about to take place. Um, he wants them to know the significance of them. He doesn't want them to be surprised by them. And he's also preparing them for what life will look like when he departs. He's trying to prepare them for what it's going to look like, how they're going to live and function when he's no longer with them. And in chapter 13, it begins with this incredible scene of Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. So we, we talked a little bit last week that at such a banquet like this, it would have been common custom for there to be water and a servant provided to wash the feet of the, of the guests who came to dinner. Um, it would always be carried out by a lowly servant or a slave. But no slave is present here. It's just Jesus and the twelve. And also, according to custom, it would have been unthinkable that any of them should voluntarily stoop down and wash the feet of, of one another. On top of that, we know from the other Gospels that at this point, the disciples are still preoccupied with competition for greatness. Who's the greatest among us? And so as this meal begins, probably rather awkwardly, everybody knows but this important custom has been bypassed. Everybody is reclining next to each other with dirty feet. And there's probably a air in the room of disciples eyeing one another, questioning who is the lowest among us that should be taking this duty, stooping down to wash the, the feet. And at this very moment, Christ rises from his position of honor as the host at this table and he takes off his garments and he wraps himself with a towel and he dons the appearance of a of a slave and while none of the disciples wanted to stoop this low here comes Christ the greatest of all and he stoops and washes their feet and so we spent a good bit of time talking about how this is really the Philippians 2 of the Gospel of John, the glorious condescension of Christ. But in doing this act of foot washing, Jesus was doing it to teach the disciples some very important lessons. And that was in verses 6 through 20 that the meaning of this foot washing is explained in two scenes. And last time we were together, we only saw the first of these in verses 6 to 11. Christ's foot washing illustrates the necessity of the cleansing work of his cross. So I'm not going to review that. If you weren't here with us, you can find it online, listen to that lesson, some glorious truths in there. 
But as glorious as that truth was about the cleansing work of his cross, it was actually not the main purpose for why Jesus was washing their feet. That's not the main thing he was trying to get at. If Peter had not spoken up, we probably wouldn't have gotten any of that teaching on the significance of the purification. Certainly he intended it to illustrate that, but it wasn't his main purpose. He was trying to teach the disciples as this new community, those who have been loved by Christ, this new community of disciples, he's trying to teach them how they should live and how the work of Christ should shape their life. So the main point of the passage, I think, is this. Christ's crosswork must come to define his new community of disciples. Not only as the thing that creates the community, but as the thing that perpetually shapes and unites and directs the ongoing life of this community. Say it another way. Christ's humiliation in the cross not only exists to create a new covenant people, but his cross exists to be the very form, the very model, the very rubric through which this new covenant people lives their lives towards one another. Christ's cross saves people, and then it reshapes people. That's what he is after. He's after teaching them how they, as disciples, should function in response to his cross. That's why he's doing the foot washing. And in verses 12 through 20, what we will look at this week, the lesson is that Christ's foot washing obligates his disciples to imitate his condescending love. So look at verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? So after completing this work, washing their feet, he comes back to the table and he asks them if they've understood what he just did. Now, I don't think he's asking if they understand the full significance of the symbolism, right? We saw last week that he told them they're not going to get that until after the cross and resurrection. That's not what he's saying. He's asking here if they've grasped the important lesson which he was intending to teach them. If they've understood the significance of his humility and how that should change everything about their lives. And so Jesus first is going to teach them verses 12 to 15, that disciples are obligated to imitate Christ's humble love owing to the greatness of his person and the equal reception of his love. Look how he begins in verse 13 by pointing out how they identify him. Verse 13. He says, You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. He begins by reminding them what they confess about him. A teacher, that this is the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew or Aramaic rabbi. Okay, you know what a rabbi is? He was an expert in the Old Testament law. He was honored and revered by disciples. A disciple sought to learn from the rabbi and imitate the rabbi. 
That's how the disciples identified Christ. He is their rabbi, their, their teacher. Very honored position. They also identify him as Lord. You call me teacher, rabbi, and Lord. Um, Lord here implies a master. He's the Lord and a slave-master relationship. Drop your eyes down to verse 16. It's exactly what he says there. A servant, a slave, is not greater than literally his Lord. Jesus is their Lord, their master. They are his slaves. He is Messiah. That is their relationship to him. I think John might have a double meaning here. This word for, for Lord is kurios. It's the Old Testament equivalent to what word? You know this word. The name of God. Yahweh. Lord. So I, I think John may be hinting at Jesus saying, you call me teacher and Lord. Master? But also even greater than that, I am Lord God. Uh, you know the confession at the end of the Gospel of John. What does Thomas say? My... Lord and my God. So all of this to say, Jesus reminds the disciples of his identity, which they confess. He's superior to them in every way. As a teacher is to a disciple, as a master is to a slave, as God is superior to a man. And he doesn't deny any of this. He says, you speak right, you're right, for so I am. In other words, his acts of humility were not denials of his supremacy, but his supremacy is what made his acts of humility so powerful and convicting. It's because of what he is. Look at verses 14 to 15 now. What implications flow from this? If that is his identity, and this is what he has done for his disciples, what's the implication? Look at verse 14. If I then, your teacher, your Lord, have washed your feet. So that's their relationship to him as their Lord and teacher. And that's what he's done to them. He's washed their feet. Implication, you also ought to wash the feet of one another. If this is what he has done. This is who he is. This is what it means for disciples. It produces an obligation to be performed. Look at verse 14 again. You also ought to wash the feet of one another. That word ought is not merely it's a good idea. You ought does not mean it's a suggestion. It doesn't even mean it's a strong encouragement. The word ought carries the idea of obligation. If I, being your superior, your Lord, your rabbi, I've done that to you and I've served you, I've served you in that way, you are obligated to respond by doing likewise. Hold your hand here. Go over to 1 John, if you will. John uses very similar terminology here. You might remember back to Clay's message about a month or two ago, I think, for 1 John. 1 John 3.16. 1 
1 John 3.16, John says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought. There's that idea again. It's very strong. We are obligated to lay down our lives for others. Go over to chapter 4, verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also, we are obligated also to love one another. That is what Jesus says here. So it produces an obligation to be performed. His relationship to them and his service to them. Next, it provides a pattern to be imitated. Verse 15. Look what he says. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Jesus says that through this act of foot washing and ultimately the cross, he was giving them an example. The word is a pattern, a model in which they are to imitate. Christ intended that his work of humility for his disciples should be the defining pattern of the life of disciples, the model around which the church should be shaped. Um, in China, when you learn Chinese characters as a child or as a second language student, you'll get a little book with Chinese characters. They're in little boxes. Maybe a poem or maybe some words, and there will be a little thin piece of rice paper over top of it. And you trace out the characters on that piece of, of paper. You can see through it to the pattern the, of the characters underneath it. You, you work on the size of the character and the stroke patterns and the way it should look. That is the, the picture here. Christ is the template. His condescension, his self-denial, his, his love. And his aim is that we who've experienced his love and grace would respond by consciously tracing our lives over his model. Look at verse 15 again. I have given you a pattern, a model, that you also should do just as I have done to you. What does the golden rule say? <clears throat> Do to others what? As you would have them do to you. But Jesus here, I think, gives us an even more fundamental rule for life. He doesn't say, do to others as you would have them do to you. That's true. He says, you are to do to others as Christ has first done to you. Exactly what he says. You should do as I have done to you. That is the model. That is the template to which we are to trace our, our lives. So before we unpack some implications from this, we're going to spend a good bit of time just talking about, man, how do we work this out in our lives? We need to establish what Jesus means by, you ought to wash one another's feet. Or, you should do just as I have done to you. Um, is this a specific mandate that we are to carry out this practice of foot washing? Uh, is this a third ordinance of the church? Some denominations teach that. There's baptism, 
Lord's Supper and foot washing. Is that what Jesus is teaching here? And I don't think so. And I'll give you three reasons why I don't think so. Number one, I don't think this is a specific mandate for foot washing or a third ordinance of the church because it's never mandated. This practice is not mandated as an ordinance anywhere else in the New Testament. Nor is it observed as an ordinance of the church in early church history. Certainly you find this practice going on. Of course you do. It was culture at that time. Everybody washed feet, but not as a, an ordinance of the, the church. Number two, I, I also don't think Jesus is mandating this specific practice in these verses because I think he's after something much larger than simply washing feet. He's after the transformation of disciples into his own image, which is love, working itself out selflessly for the good of others. So look at the very end of chapter 13. Look at verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, so you are to love one another. I think that's what he's after. In fact, I think it would very, be very easy to mask self-love or to limit our obligation to one another in a life of universal humility by just hiding behind this act. I did the foot washing. It's all I wanted, right? No, I think Jesus means to point to the heart attitude behind his act of foot washing here. That's what he's after, not just the act. And number three, I don't think it's the specific act of foot washing because look at verse 15 again. You should do as I have done to you. So if that applies to all disciples, and it does. It cannot mean foot washing because I don't think Christ has ever washed any of your feet, right? So it's going to be kind of hard to do to others what Christ has done to you if that means foot washing. He's not. He has done something for you, though, which is what? It's even greater than foot washing. He went to the cross. But even that, you don't respond by doing the exact act, right? He died for you on the cross. You don't respond by going out and dying on the cross, right? It's the hard attitude is what he is, is after. The point instead is that disciples are obligated to imitate the pattern of Christ's humility and love. So when he says you ought to wash one another's feet, I think he's getting at the heart attitude of what's behind that. A life of service and condescension. So let's unpack some implications from all of this here. First thing is, what is the nature of this obligation? So when he says you ought to do this, what does that mean? I think it means this. Believers who have benefited from the infinite condescension of Christ, from his selfless love, from his self-denying sacrifice, likewise must give their lives in self-denial, humble condescension, and intentional love for the good of others. I'll say those again. 
We must live lives of self-denial, humble condescension, and intentional love for the good of others. We're going to unpack that a little bit later today in some practical applications. Number two, who is this obligation to be directed toward mainly? What does it say? Look at verse 14. Who are we mainly obligated to in this verse? You tell me. Sorry? Believers. Excellent. One another. You see that? Verse 14. Wash the feet of one another. That is, other disciples. Those who've also experienced the condescending love of Christ alongside of us. Now, one would think that the appropriate response to Christ doing this to us would be to return some service to him, right? And certainly that, that's taught in some places of the Bible, but that's not what Jesus says here. The appropriate response to receiving this kind of humble love from Christ to us is to return it to his disciples. I think he's saying the best indicator that you've gotten it what he's done for you, the greatness of his sacrifice, will be seen in your similar acts of condescending love to the lowest of disciples in acts of lowly service. That's when you know you've gotten it. As a disciple, your primary obligation of sacrificial love is to other disciples more than to anyone outside this community. Now, are we to love unbelievers? Yes, of course. Do we serve unbelievers? Yes, of course. But the point is not to the exclusion of or even to the same degree that we love our own brothers and sisters in the church. But why? Why would Jesus say that? Why is our obligation mainly to one another? I think his point is to say that the community of disciples is to be characterized by the same love which created it. What a contradiction it would be if such a group of people could claim to have been so loved by the Lord and yet live with carelessness and haughtiness and self-focus as they relate to one another. What a contradiction. Christ's purpose is that his love would have a transforming effect in the way his people relate to one another. Believers experience the overflow of the love of Christ, and then they become conduits of that love towards one another with whom they are in relationship. So the answer to this question is our main obligation is of self-denying service for the good and upbuilding of the church, your local church, your brothers and sisters. Number three, why is it an obligation? <clears throat> or, say it another way, what are we declaring if we fail to align ourselves to this model? What does Jesus mean by this greater to lesser statement? If I am your Lord and teacher, then you too must do so. What are we saying when we say, I will not deny myself out of voluntary love for others? 
Yes, Jesus did that for me, but I will not do it for others. What are we saying when we say that? I have two things written down. I think we're saying that we are more worthy of that kind of a sacrifice from Christ than others around us are worthy of a sacrifice from us. It's the height of self-righteousness and hypocrisy. Ultimately, I deserve the humiliation of Christ. I don't want to stoop because they are unworthy. But that's the point. Of course they're unworthy, just as you were infinitely unworthy of the condescension of Christ. So I think it's self-righteousness. That's why we don't. Another reason we don't is because we think we're more deserving of escape from the path of humiliation than even Jesus himself was. I think Jesus is saying that when we refuse to walk the same path as our Lord and our Savior, we are saying that I am above something that the Lord himself was not even above. I am exempt from the path that not even Christ was exempt. It is arrogant self-exaltation. And that's why Christ says we're obligated as slaves. We're obligated as disciples. We're obligated as creatures of the Lord to respond in the same model as he. We're going to unpack that in the future verses in just a moment. Let me give you one more implication before we Number four, where does this life come from? It's obviously contrary to anything in us. I think it comes from first having been served by Christ. You see, you will never be able to imitate Christ like this until you have first been served by him. You'll never be able to live a humble life of love to others until you first come to the realization of the infinite grace and mercy and condescension Christ has already shown to you. You must be washed first. You must experience the cleansing of his cross before you will be able to live this life to others. That's why he began the way he did. He's not telling us to crank it out of our own willpower. It comes from somewhere. Or flip this around the other way. If your life is characterized by exclusive self-focus, self-love, lack of glad self-denial for the good of others, then the root problem is that you've either, either never experienced, you have forgotten, or you cease to be gripped by the greatness of the love and humiliation of Christ for you. That's where it comes from. If you've known him, if you knew what he did to you, this is the only appropriate response. So those are some implications of what Jesus means in these verses. Let's move on here to the next section. In verses 16 to 20 now, he will tell us that disciples are obligated to imitate Christ's humble love owing to their relationship to him as Lord and sender. And these verses, in one sense, sort of echo everything we just read, summarize it for us. But they also give us a further point, that as disciples, we are sent ones. We are representatives of Christ. 
So look at verse 16. A messenger is not greater than one who sent him. Drop your eye down to verse 20. Whoever receives the one I send. So this section is sort of bookended by this idea of disciples are sent ones. You are sent as a representative of Christ, and that's why you are also obligated to imitate him. So let's look at these quickly. First, in verses 16 to 17, we're told that disciples must imitate Christ due to their relationship to him as superior. Look at verse 16. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So verse 16 is a general rule, principle. We all know a slave is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than his sender. The point is that they must not think themselves to be exempt from something Christ was exempt. If he's superior and he's taken this on himself, they have no room to exempt themselves. In other words, there is no task which was lower than washing feet at this time. And if our Lord and Sender did this, it implies that there is no act of service that any of us can think of which we should deem as beneath us. None. What are some of those? You tell me. Some acts of service we're tempted to think are beneath us. So think in your various realms. At church? At home? At work? You think. What are ones that normally we're tempted to think we're, we're over? <clears throat> I would just say like the mundane things. You had a lot of responsibility. You just think, oh, well, these these mundane things. Someone else can take care of that. Mm -hmm. Other things that I got to take care of. So Good. It could be anything from cleaning to um, still, yeah, time-consuming, but mundane things that should be for someone else. That's what I try to convince <clears throat> I think I have more better. I have better things to do. Is what we say. Right. My time is better spent. Someone else. What else? It's just, I mean, it's, I wouldn't view this necessarily as menial, but just being at church and like being willing to introduce myself to maybe new people Good. coming in here, and I'll be like, oh, someone else can do that. Yeah. I kind of don't, don't need to do that. There's so many people here yeah. just being willing to do that. Excellent. <clears throat> like, I'm thinking of parenting, obviously. There's um, no times in parenting. <laughs> <laughs> Specifically with discipline, I find myself busy with a task and then something happens and the kids inconvenience me, you know, and I'm too busy to take care of discipline, which should take precedence. Um, that's definitely a big yeah. thing in my heart that I work through. Yeah. Amen. It's good. So there's a ton. I mean, we could spend the rest of class talking about these. Go home, chew on it. What are those tasks that I'm inclined to think are beneath me? That's what Christ's model says. Nothing is beneath you if nothing was beneath the Lord. And 
think we need to also be aware that we're not talking about tests that we don't have a choice in. Right? There's a lot of those in parenting. I don't have a choice. I have to change the diaper of my kid, right? Um, but ones even that voluntarily we can easily choose to do or not to do. It's beneath me, I'll, I'll just let someone else do it. You know, just let it go by. The call is for us to voluntarily bring ourselves up under these things in humble submission for the good of others. The point here is the same as above. Should we ignore them? Treat them as below us. We're making a bold proclamation that we identify ourselves as superior to Christ. D.A. Carson said it like this. No emissary has the right to think he is exempt from tasks cheerfully undertaken by the one who sent him. And no slave has the right to judge any menial task beneath him after his master has already performed it. But knowing that is not enough. Look at verse 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And all of us know these things. I think this verse is where we're at. We praise these things. We think these are great and noble things. We might even be stirred up to excitement about these things. We even agree that true disciple is to be about these things. But we so rarely do follow through and do these things. Opportunities pass us by one after another. Chances to apply what we've just affirmed. But we easily excuse it or overlook it or neglect it or skip over it in the pretense that someone else will get it. And in one sense, I'm preaching to the choir. Look around this room and all of you are exemplary servants. I've been served by you. Um, praise the Lord for his work in your life. This is there. The call for us is to grow all the more in it. Let's press on here. And Jesus says that we will be blessed, not if we know it, but if we do it. The world says this word blessed means happiness, the, the good life, true satisfaction. The world says you get that by living for yourself, eating it up, making life all about me. Christ says there's no happiness there. There's happiness joy, contentment, when we're conformed to the image of Christ, when we do these things. So that's what we're after. We want these truths to sink deep into us so we become a people who do live this kind of life. I need to ask, what, what hinders us so often at this point from action? What hinders us from moving from the place from affirmation to, to action? We believe it, we know it's good, so we easily fail to follow through. For the sake of time, let me just give you the ones that, that I have. I think, number one, we minimize this obligation. We treat it as though it's just merely icing on the cake of Christianity. We fail to see that this is what it means to be a Christian. It's what it means to be a disciple. This is why we were saved. It's not icing on the cake. Number two, we are unwilling to deny and mortify our desires which crave self-fulfillment. We think that it should not be so hard and so contrary to my flesh. 
We think it should be easier. We think that, okay, if this is true, it shouldn't be this difficult to carry out. Should it be this painful? We forget that Christ's humiliation and suffering was not even easy for him. He sweat great drops of blood in his natural desires to avoid death. And yet he obeyed in faith. And that's the calling for us. We don't wait around till it's going to feel good to do it. We obey and do this in response to the Lord's command, in response to what he's done to us. And then the happiness comes. Then the joy comes after We've done it. Number three, another reason why we don't think it's because we're still characterized by proud self-exaltation. John Calvin wrote, For the reason why the love of the brethren is despised is that every man thinks more highly of himself than he ought and despises almost every other person. That's our default, guys. Jonathan Edwards, I love this illustration he gives. He, he said, he's talking about the condescension of Christ, such a condescension of infinite highness and low condescension in the same person is admirable. We see by manifold instances what a tendency, a high station, a high position has in man to make him of quite a contrary disposition. Usually people that are higher up in the ranks, not always the nicest of people is what he's saying. And then he gives an illustration. If one worm be a little exalted above another by having more dust or a bigger dunghill, how much does he make of himself? What a distance does he keep from those that are below him? And a little condescension is what he expects should be made much of and greatly acknowledged. Christ condescends to wash our feet, but how would great men, or rather bigger worms, account themselves debased by acts of far less condescension. In other words, if Christ, the highest and most worthy, went to the greatest depths, then how much more we who are already unworthy, but worms, be willing to stoop but the height of an anthill. The greatest of condescension is nothing in comparison with Christ. It's but the stooping from the height of a dunghill. He did it by descending from infinite heights. And we who are already dust and ashes are unwilling to stoop a little. If we do, we expect that any act of condescension needs to be greatly praised and admired. We're very unlike Christ, aren't we? And yet, he's come to change us. And he has changed you by his work. And the call is to grow, progress, press on more and more to his his image, which brings us now to the question, what is the remedy? What is the remedy for this self-love, self-exaltation? I think I put them in your outline. Let me just rattle them off. We need to be reminded of the supremacy of Christ and the depths he stooped for us. Meditate on that. Number two, we need to remember our relationship with him as his slave and sent representative. Number three, we need to remember the abundance of grace and love we've received. If this is a tendency in your heart, there's a good chance you are not communing with the Lord, swimming in the grace of which he has poured out for you, knowing he's washed you and you're completely clean as a disciple, owing to nothing in yourself. You know that? It's going to change you. 
Number four, we need to preach to ourselves the imperative of this way of life. It's not icing on the cake. And number five, we need to be on guard against thinking it's going to be easy or it just shouldn't actually flow. It's going to take mortification, fighting, denying ourselves. Well, we got a little bit more to go. Um, let me just go through these really quickly. And then I'll open it up before we have any time for questions. Verses 18 to 19. Disciples must be distinguished from false disciples. Verse 18. Jesus says, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place. That when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Judas is still in the room. And to avoid confusion about the roles of disciples, what disciples do and who they are, he clarifies that not all are disciples who appear to be disciples. Next passage next week, we're going to see Jesus preparing his disciples for the betrayal of Judas. But he brings this up here to say that this way of life that we just talked about can only be practiced by those who've experienced Christ's work. He says, I'm not talking about all of you. This doesn't apply to all of you. It's only those who know him as their Lord and as their teacher and have been cleansed by him can do this. Finally, verse 20. Disciples must represent Christ due to their relationship to him as sender. Verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Christ, we've seen it all through John. He was sent by the Father, and he so perfectly represents the Father, being very God of very God himself, that whatever you do to Christ is what you do to the Father. There's an inseparable link between the two. And he says that that relationship is to exist between disciples and him. We are to so represent Christ, so look like Christ, so sound like Christ, that what the world does with disciples is what they do with Christ. Christ ordained that we mediate his person to the world. We represent him. And if you fail, we fail to align ourselves to this, we will be failing to represent him properly. What a contradiction, distortion to the message we proclaim, the very task we've been given, is mixed with self-love, self-focused, and an air of superiority. So in closing, let me just exhort you, examine your life. Evaluate how you align with this passage. Consider at what point you've gotten off. And uh, maybe in forgetfulness of his glory, maybe in a desire for ease and comfort, maybe a desire for self-exaltation. And then respond by going to Christ for cleansing. You're always a step away. Man, I fall so short. I'm so convicted after this passage. Praise the Lord. Confess it. Wash your feet. And then you experience his grace and love. And now give yourself to pouring yourself out. And then be on the lookout for practical ways to stoop low. Think of your various spheres. Husband to wife. Parent to child. Boss to employee. Older to younger. Teacher to student. Spiritual leader to disciple. Go low for the sake of Christ in those relationships. Find specific ways for the glory of Christ, not your self-exaltation. Pour yourself out with just a fraction of the love you've so abundantly received from him. That's why he washed 
the feet of his disciples. Any questions, comments? Thoughts about that? Michael, in your uh, study, do you find like, a significant parallel between um, Mary's display of servanthood towards Christ and then in the very next chapter, I mean, you have this act of Christ on behalf of his disciples. Did you, John's doing something very intentional there. Would you agree just in your study? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think he begins this whole chapter 12, sort of transition chapter, begins with Mary anointing the feet of Christ. She's a model disciple. And all the other disciples are still failing to get it. She's pouring out everything for him. Even in chapter 12, you see Judas is the one who immediately responds with a contrary attitude to Mary. So Mm -hmm. it's just a very very parallel passage. Yeah. Amen. It is. It's a beautiful picture. Yeah. As you were going through it, I just kind of pictured the disciples sitting around. It's almost as if. You know, I'm putting myself in their place, but it's almost as if they all look around like it's impossible. It's not even a, a possibility that I'm do, doing this yeah. task. Who's going to wash the feet? You know, like, and so it makes me wonder what am I blind to, you know, in the church or whatever, the needs that there are, just because I don't even consider it a possibility. Hey, someone else is going to take care of that. Um, you know, that's that's kind of what I'm asking myself right now. Is what am I blind to or do I need to do? It's a really good observation. You know, Mike, real quick. Um, the implications of uh, loving one another that you went over earlier, uh, and then you touched on it, and you're going to, I know you're going to touch on this uh, in the future uh, in this chapter, but verse 35 is so monumental. And an implication of that is, you know, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And uh, that it's such a testimony to the world. And I know you're, it's coming up, but uh, it, that hit me here this morning. Amen. Yep. And I think now that we've got this background, this story, it makes crystal clear sense why he would say that, right? As his representatives, and this is the way we're going to put this message on display to the world. Amen. All right, guys. I think we're out of time. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, what an amazing Savior is Christ. None like Him. Yet He is the very display of your heart. That's what God is really like. And the astonishing thing is that fallen, puny man should behave so contrary of self-exaltation as though we deserve a thing. Thank you, Lord, for loving us first. Thank you for cleansing us. Thank you for the humility of Christ. Transform our hearts. Continue to grow us in this. And we will be your faithful slaves and disciples to you, our Lord and our God. We praise you. We love you. Prepare our hearts for the service to come. In Jesus' name, amen.